flipped. You want to know how Georgia went from red to purple? We're about to talk to the guy who wrote the book. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome to another edition of the Chuck Williams Show. I promise it's not a political podcast, but it's certainly starting to seem like one right now. Our guest is Greg Bluestein. Greg is a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, AJC.com, and one of the most respected political co- reporters in the state of Georgia. Greg, welcome. It's such an honor to be here, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Um, you, you seem to have a knack for being in the right place at the right time. Uh, it's, it, you know, a lot of people think that's luck for a journalist. I, I would argue it's preparation meeting luck. But you extensively covered the 2020 election cycle. And you wrote a book about it, Flip, that just released, what, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago today, yeah, or yesterday. No, how's, today, two weeks ago today. How, how's it do, How's it doing? Is it is it selling? So far, so good. Uh, all I hear from the publishers is good stuff, so I, I'll take that. Well, you, you know, what prompted you to write a book about the backstory of how Georgia flipped? And, you know, and obviously it's about Warnock and Ossoff. It's about Trump. It's about Kemp. It's about Purdue. It's about... Abrams. It's about all of these just large Raffensperger, larger than life personalities that have kind of emerged locally, state, and now nationally. What prompted you to do this? To write to put Yeah, by book? the way, all those characters, it, I, I could never have dreamed this up when I was writing it, um, but all those folks are still in the center of national attention. Right? They've all become household names, not just in Georgia, but across the country. I had no idea that David Perdue would be challenging Brian Kemp when I started writing this book in January of last year. Um, no clue that, you know, that, that, that the Abrams, I thought that Abrams Kemp rematch would be a big deal, but no clue that it actually happened. I had a hunch it would, um, nor did I know that Warnock would be yet again in the middle of a Senate election battle that could decide the control of, of the chamber. Um, so the story of how I decided to write it is is not crazy, um, is not all that like sexy. <laughs> it more was uh, an agent called me. I was thinking about writing a book in eighteen um, a- after the the Abrams Kemp election, um, but there, we just decided. I just there was there, it's great stuff there, but it wasn't enough for for a standalone book. Um, and then in the middle of the twenty twenty uh, runoffs, so after the November twenty election, and before the January fifth. Uh, runoffs, um, an agent called me and said, hey, have you been thinking about writing a book? And I was like, well, yeah, but like we're right now we're in the middle of the most frantic, biggest story that we've ever covered in terms of a political race that happens to be in the middle of a uh, movement for social justice and a pandemic. Um, I thought I had my- And my, a challenge to Georgia's election system. And a challenge to Georgia's election. So I thought I had my hands pretty, pretty full. Um, but he really uh, encouraged me, this agent, Justin- um, to consider a book. And he said, look, I'll help you write the proposal. That's, 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 that's a, you know, that's the first step. Um, so after I cleared it with first my wife, then my bosses, and then, um, and then called some folks I know who have written books to, to uh, trying to get them to tell me I was crazy. And they did tell me I was crazy, but they also said to do it. Um, I sat down and started writing a book proposal that ended up becoming 90 pages 
and I got it done um, at night and weekends uh, during the runoff campaign. Um, and uh, I, of course, wrote it with a cliffhanger because I didn't know what the outcome would be. But I said, either way, um, I felt like there was, there was a book to be to be written there. And um, shortly after the runoff, I had interviews with uh, a, a series of publishers and <clears throat> to kind of gauge their interest and they wanted to gauge mine. And it was really fun because, um, you know, uh, as a reporter who lives and dies by deadlines, you know, we're, me and you are used to like minute by minute deadlines, right? Hour by hour. You've got to have this by six. Hey, TV deadlines are more absolute than newspaper. I'm here oh, to tell yeah, you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yours are hard and fast. Mine can be fudged a little bit, but there's still deadlines that are, that are pretty, Absolutely. pretty strict. Whereas, and you've been through both of them. Whereas, like, the book, you know, it's kind of like, hey, just get it done by, <laughs> get the first draft done by the summer. So I had to kind of instill um, my own sort of deadlines on myself or else I, I, would, I would kind of let it go too crazy. One of the things I'm curious about people that do what you do, have a serious day job writing, and then write a book like this, did you write it morning? Did you write it the morning or at night? When were you the most productive as a writer? So I used to be a morning person. Now I'm not at all. Um, and I feel like my brain is most active at night. So, and maybe that's because of the jolt, the morning newsletter that we do, um, that me and Patricia Murphy and Tia Mitchell write every morning for the AJC. Um, my job is writing, is going at night. So I will, I will go ahead and put a bunch of stuff in the jolt file every night. Um, sometimes after parties, you know, sometimes uh-huh. after dinners, sometimes after the kids' softball games or uh, a family outing or something. You know, I'll, I'll go after the kids go to bed, after my wife is asleep, I'll go kind of down to the basement or or the living room. And, um, you know, sometimes it's 10 to 10.30. Sometimes it's only half an hour, 45 minutes. But I'll start putting stuff in the file. And I just got so used to that. And now, for better or for worse, I feel like my brain is more active at night and there's less distractions. You know, I'm not getting called a million times. I'm not getting a bunch of texts or emails. Um, The kids are asleep, so I don't feel guilty. Um, I wouldn't go to bed at you know, 10 o'clock or 10.30 when my wife goes to sleep anyway because I would just be sitting up watching TV or something. Um, so that's kind of when it, I, I did a lot of my writing between 10 and 1 a.m. in the morning and just every day kind of set myself a deadline or every week, really. Like I wanted to finish at least the first draft of this chapter by the end of the week and the second draft of, of that chapter by the end of this week. You know, discipline is so important. I watched a friend of mine, Richard Hyatt, who was uh, who has written a number of books. He was a journalist at the Ledger Inquirer when I was there. And Richard did the biography of Zell. And it was for Mercer Press. And he was missing some of those deadlines. They literally scooped him up, put him in a hotel room in Macon, and he wrote for food. Uh, I mean, Really? That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it, that's an over-exaggeration, but I mean... It was it was one of those things where they he literally had to be put somewhere to do it and you know and that's it's hard to the discipline to write writing is good writing good writing factual writing on something like flipped is not easy work it's very hard work and it's tedious yes um, and you're right you know I mean look me and you we're used to if we have to wait a week for a story, it's probably a long time, right? Um, two weeks, if I have to work on a story for a month, if it's a project that's sort of on the, in the background, I, it starts gnawing at me. Why hasn't this run yet? Oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, working on something for a year, 
uh, I got antsy too. Like I was, look, I mean, I could have written it so that um, it would have come out in August of last year or, 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 or September, October. I'm very glad the way it turned the out. The timing is perfect. Yeah, the timing works for me too. But, but I mean, I was ready. And um, I think for me, I just had to uh, continually, I had a, an outline. I, I wrote the outline in the book proposal. So I had a general kind of outline. And I remember you have this feeling um, and it's like, I didn't know, I don't know anything about the publishing industry, right? I just relied on um, my naivete. I think it helped in a sense. Um, so uh, my publisher was just, uh, you know, good luck, go go do your thing. And I expected this team of editors and reporters to swarm around me and say, here's how to do chapter one. And let's think about how we devise chapter six and all this stuff. And instead it's just like, hey, you know, we have faith in you. Uh, we bought the book. Go do it. You were and in a kayak on just, you were in a kayak on Lake Lanier, right? I mean, you're yes, out there by you're yourself. Exactly right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The book, and and I I will tell you, I didn't read it. I listened to it. I listened to the book on tape, and I thought, luckily, it wasn't my voice. No, no, it wasn't your voice. But only the the only critique of the only. Negative thing I'll say is they mispronounce Calvin Smyrie. I heard thing. that. I've heard that from multiple people. Was it Smeary? Smear. Smur. Smur. Yeah. It, it was It was like, whoa, don't do that to Calvin now. Um, But, you know, uh, it was so well done. Really, really well done. But how did you get a lot of those backstories? I mean, we all get those backstories, but very rarely do we get them where you can publish them. And I know there were some that – didn't have a name to it, but you knew it was somebody in the room or in the car. Um, and, you know, and, and I'll use one because we talked about it on the podcast last week with Chris Carr, the attorney general. Yeah. I mean, the story about he and his wife and daughter are trying to watch Elf and the president's calling. I mean, that was a really telling tidbit that really was is the kind of thing that pops up time and again in this book. Yeah, and it, that's what made it so much fun because I covered, you know, Chris Carr getting pressured by Donald Trump. And so I wrote a very serious newspaper story at the time um, that ran in the AJC and, you know, and it ended up getting national attention because it was yet another example of Donald Trump's attempts to interfere with, you know, with, with Georgia elected officials. But it was a very bare-bones story. You know, Donald Trump called Chris Carr to XYZ, right? Yeah. And it was fun going back to all those different stories and talking to people. If, if the people actually involved weren't willing to talk, I'd go people around those people involved, right? Um, people who knew directly um, and would kind of get the story and uh, recreate those scenes. And then Rook, there's a lot of fact checking. So uh, let's say I, with that scene, I would write up that scene and then make sure during a couple months later, Hey, you know, I'd sometimes read it back on the phone to whoever my source was and say, is this accurate? Is this the right way to say it? And sometimes they'd be like, yep. And sometimes they'd say, you know, you're missing this great detail of the popcorn popping in the background or whatever, or, or, you know, Chris's daughter, his teenage daughter kind of stalked out the room. was like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going upstairs. (laughs) That kind of thing. So, um, but there's also, look, I mean, me and you do this. So, you know, we're used to fact checking, but we're also used to fact checking, on a daily basis, right? Not on a weekly or monthly. I, you know, I just wrote a story a couple minutes before coming on air and I fact checked it and had to make a, you know, a slight change um, uh, w- w- using a different verb, right? 
But with this, it's just fact-checking scenes and things like that. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I would read sections of stories back on when I was doing long-form narrative stuff at the Ledger, and almost invariably you ended up, when you read it back, with a nugget you didn't have. And just what you were saying, and it, it's, it's so true, and I'm sure this book played out. Who was the tough? I don't know if this is a fair question. I'll ask it anyway. But who were, who were the stone walls that you ran into when they figured out what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I had really good cooperation um, from, from a lot, not just the principal candidates, but also people around them. Um, look, I tried to get Joe Biden. Um, my connections didn't work out for Joe Biden. Um, and, and I had so much of Trump's voice. Of course, I would have loved to sit down with Donald Trump. Um, he's not doing as many book interviews anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> Wonder why. Yeah, but I, but I was able to get people around both of those men. So I felt like, but they, well, of course, I, to me, they were the t- toughest. Um, Did you get Giuliani? And, um, I had people around Giuliani. Okay. Um, and I also had, you know, even for, even even when a principal candidate here in Georgia didn't wasn't comfortable saying something, I could go to someone near them and say like, hey, you know, I know I know so and so didn't want to tell this story, but how did this happen? You know, how did that meeting with with so and so go? And the you know, how did that interaction with Donald Trump go? Um, and you know, was able look like there's always some discrepancies too. Um, you know, that someone remembers it going this way, someone remembers it yep. going that way. Very rarely do we have a recording, but we do have a few recordings in the book, too. (laughs) It's worked out. Uh, You know, and you have people, I mean, you know, we were talking about the household names earlier. Even people like Gabriel Sterling became household names. Yes. And somebody like Gabe, I would imagine, I don't know, I mean, don't give away sourcing, but I would imagine Gabe had a lot of insight that would have been very valuable in what you were doing. Well, I mean, even what he said on the record, if you just go back, and sometimes it's, it's just piecing together the, the timeline of what happened, you know? And that was the challenge too with this book was so much stuff was happening. And we, we tend to, you know, we tend to gloss that over of what we lived through in 2020 and in, in the latter half of that year with the campaigns, because we were going through, I know, look, me and you as reporters, we, we were dealing with three or four stories of our lifetime, right? Between a, a global pandemic that is once in a, a century, if not more, between the movement for social justice that was sweeping, uh, you know, all over the, the nation and in the, in in, in where we live, right, and it's affecting political change as well. Um, between the, the this epic election that that led to the flipping of, of of Georgia's you know two Senate seats in the presidential race, and then you add to that um, the campaign to undo the election results. All those four combined, you know, those those will all be enough for one report, you know, for one year. But um, those combined, you know, trying to put those all into a narrative thread made it made it for a fun job. You know, it was interesting to me um, where it hit me was, I guess it was during the runoff. I covered a ISOF car rally in the parking lot at the Columbus yeah. Civic Center, and. Um, uh, I go home, file my story, and I'm turning on the TV, and I look up, and Isoff is being interviewed for his Aaron Burnett, or one of the CNN shows, is being interviewed from in front of the Columbus Civic Center and doing a live interview. And it's like, okay, we really are. You know, this is, I could get there on my golf cart and 
you know, that's how close you, we were to this massive na- national story. I mean, and I'll give you another example. I was trying to get something else out of Gabe Sterling, and he said, hey, Chuck, I got to go. I'll, I'll call you back later with what you're looking for. No problem, thanks. 30 minutes later, he was giving the speech about somebody's going to get killed, and I'm going, "Yeah, uh, you could have at least told me you were fixing to go light up the national news. But, I mean, you know, th- we were in the middle of uh, we were in the middle of a storm. As, as journalists is the way I look at it. And, I mean, you were obviously closer to it being in Atlanta than we were, but the winds were blowing down here too. You're right. And, look, I mean, Columbus was in the spotlight throughout, as you just mentioned, Kamala Harris. I think it was, was it her first visit after she was second, elected? No, first. Yeah, it was her first. It was her first, yeah. I think. Where did she go? She went to Columbus. Um, you know, the, the amount of parking lot in a hole. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about off-air, but the amount of money that was spent – on advertising and on, um, you know, for all of our, for, for the Columbus Metro market, but Atlanta Metro market. And the thing is, it's not going away. Like we, we are going to be, it might not be to that degree because we're not sure how, we're not sure how this will play out, but we, we again have the premier statewide elections. We have um, a rematch between, uh, well, maybe a rematch between Kemp and, and, and Abrams, but at the very least Abrams second bid for, for governor. And we've got another Senate battle that could determine control of the chamber. Um, really quickly, yeah. Doggy just got here. Let me put him in the basement because okay, hold on, a dog break. Hey, I like that. You don't want him to bark, though. That's the Dylan. Thing. This is our first dog break in the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> okay, number one rule in journalism: when Greg gets back, we're going to ask him. You always want to know the dog's name. It's the number one rule in journalism when you're dealing with a dog. Man. <laughs> okay. Do this in a uh, in a live podcast. Okay. My dog just started. Okay. I, I will leave it in. I think it's brilliant. But I, okay. Number one rule in journalism: What's the dog's name? Dog is Charlie Marbles, and whether it was ridiculous or not, I I put him in my dedication to the rest of my family. <laughs> it was. <laughs> we got him, and we also got him right around the same time I started writing the book. Um, <laughs> it was Thanksgiving, so around the same time that agent called, uh, we had this brilliant idea to get a dog. <laughs> so you know your family i mean you've got two daughters that are what nine twelve is that what you said eleven and eight eleven eight okay so you got two young daughters and you did something that i thought was really fascinating on some of the weekend events you had to cover last year or in the in the campaign you took your daughters out and you actually let them ask leffler warnock Purdue. I, I don't know who all by. I remember Leffler yeah. specifically. You took them out to campaign events, and you actually let them ask questions. What did you learn from that, both as a dad and and kind of as a professional question asker? Well, first, they ask a lot better questions than we do as <laughs> professional reporters. My daughter asked David Purdue whether or not he felt like schools should be reopened, and it was just not. You know, this was in the middle of the pandemic and- when a lot of schools were closed, including hers. And I would have asked him about the $2,000 stimulus, you know, paycheck, whatever, uh, whatever the debate du jour was. And she asked a really good question, which he completely dodged, by the way. He, he gets <laughs> on his, like, his knees and he goes, looks at her in the eyes and goes, what do you think? <laughs> so um, it was fun. It was So A, they asked better questions than we do a lot of times. B, it was really interesting to, um, to hear how the candidates reacted. So 
for instance, Warnock was great. You know, Senator Warnock, back then he was a candidate, um, he kind of joked, he joked around how their questions were better than ours. <laughs> and, you know, gave the question that my daughter asked him was, how does being a pastor prepare you for, for running for public office? And he gave this long um, detail about how being a politician and a pastor is not that different. Um, but then when, when John, can you hear that? That's fine. Don't worry about it. We've introduced, introduced Charlie Marbles. I think it works now. Go ahead. Okay, good. When, um, when, when they interviewed John Ossoff and asked him about why there are all these campaign negative campaign ads, um, Ossoff kind of looks at my daughter and goes into this long extended monologue about campaign finance reform and, and how he would bring back certain restrictions and all this. And my daughter's like, what are you talking about? I have no <laughs> clue what he's saying. You know, it's interesting because in this era where we're labeled fake media and people are constantly trying to attack our credibility, what you did with your daughters, but particularly the way you kind of handle your social media stuff and things, putting your family out there to the extent you can uh, sort of shows people that we're people too. Yeah, and we are, right? I mean, we were going through everything else that every other voter was going through, right? We had um, uh, pandemic shutdowns as well. My wife works at uh, a hospital in Atlanta, so she never really stopped working. <sighs> Me and you never really stopped working, right? Yep. Uh, we might have been working from home a little bit more, but we were still out there. And, and in fact, you know, our job was as important as it ever was. We were more not important. only were we reporting about whatever was happening um, in the political world, we were talking about basically life and death uh, type decisions, you know, the governor and the government was making, shutting down businesses, shutting down schools, limiting gatherings, all these things were, you know, lives and livelihoods. Um, so, I, you know, when, when, and when schools shut down, guess what, you know, I'm working on things and the, the new dog is here, the kids are around, <laughs> like we were just, it was nonstop. Um, and I just fig- figured, here, should I put him in the basement? Or I'll make let Dylan make the call. <laughs> I think we can leave this in. This is actually kind of cool. We get <laughs> you know, reporters are people too. Here he is, by the way. Oh man, look what's up, Mister Charlie? <laughs> Charlie Marbles. Mr. Charlie, he's very annoying, and he's you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm glad he brought him. I'm glad he brought him. Oh. To anybody who's listening to this on Spotify or whatever, you really need to go to WRBL.com and watch it. The pictures are better than the words, I promise you. Right, Dylan? Better than the barks. Better than the barks. I mean, you got to see Charlie Marbles. He is quite the spaniel. You have a dog, right? I got two. I got two dogs. I got Dixie Lee and Yoda. Yoda is a seven-pound chihuahua. That makes sense. I could see that. <laughs> it's it's one of the highlights of the people in my neighborhood to see Big Me walking Little Yoda. Sorry about that. Okay, we, we have we haven't quite trained him uh, yet. <laughs> You're getting there though. Why did you become a reporter, Greg? When did you just say, "Hey, I want to do this for a living"? So I remember it because it was fourth grade <laughs> at um, the school I was going to. It was called the Greenfield Hebrew Academy, and um, the AJC beat writer. Uh, I.J. Rosenberg, he covered the Braves. And it was the Braves around the time of the worst to first season. And he came to our class. I don't remember what he said. I don't remember what lessons he imparted. But his basic message was, um, 
it's fun to be a journalist. And when I got home, I told my mom, I said, I want to be a reporter. Um, I don't know what I want to cover, but I think I want to cover, you know, Braves. I think I want to cover baseball. And um, I don't know if she was horrified or <laughs> she was, but she did tell me, hey, to, to be a reporter, you've got to learn how to type. And for whatever reason, that freaked me out because that was something that was going to daunting, impossible. And so at some point I switched to being a doctor because I thought that was easier. And <laughs> it is. <laughs> a couple bad grades in AP physics and AP chemistry in high school later, um, I was one of my best friends uh, in, hi- in high school. Her dad was a CNN producer. And I was over at her house one day, and, and it was 1998, and um, the Russians were attacking Kosovo. It was this, you know, we thought it could be World War III. There's a lot of parallels to today, and uh, but not as many. Um, and it was all hands on deck at CNN. So, so Jessica's dad comes running downstairs to the basement where we were watching MTV or something. And he's like, hey, do you guys want to come to the office with me? And Jessica's like, no. And I said, yes. <laughs> so I went, and whatever happened at that office, you know, just being around the buzz of news made me want to be a journalist again. It's an adrenaline. There's no question about it. And I very similar experience to you. I uh, decided in the seventh grade I was never going to be a ball player, so I wanted to be able to go to games for free. So that I became a sports writer. You and, were a sports writer first. Oh yeah, sports writer, sports editor. Um, I was. I got to cover some Auburn stuff when um, Auburn had uh, people like Charles Barkley and Bo Jackson. So. Wow, you know it was it, it was really really interesting. I've covered uh, I've covered Masters World Series, uh, you know, in uh, a really I mean it's it. I'm a sports guy. I'll always be a sports yeah. guy. You, you are too, to some degree. I mean, yeah. I I mean I followed you were my number one Twitter guy during the national championship game because the SEC championship game, national championship game. You were kind of there, and you were on the field. I don't know how you worked that out, but I'll tell you. I mean, so so I'm like you're a UGA guy. We'll go dogs. Congratulations, go dogs. But no, but a lot of those things you just said that I go through not as a as a sports reporter, but ever since I worked for the Associated Press, I've um, been able to run photos for photographers on the sidelines. So um, basically, what it is is that you know, especially big outlets like the AP, they need quick. They need quick turnover. Um, they need to file their photos really quickly, not just for the print editions of the newspaper once, but after every big play, after every turnover, after every quarter, every half, every kickoff, whatever it might be, um, they file a bunch of pictures and they're used all over the world. Yep. And so they have someone who, like me who goes, hands, hangs out with the photographers after they take pictures, runs the chip back to the photo editor somewhere in the bowels of the stadium and then goes runs back. So... I have gotten to cover um, SEC championships, NFL playoff games, Super Bowls, MLS Cups, Rose Bowl, national championship game, um, all sorts of big, huge events, right, uh, by, by running on the sidelines. You end up missing a little bit, but you're, you're still there on the sidelines in a place you cannot buy, right? You can't buy those tickets. No, you can't buy those tickets. And, you know, it's interesting because – if you had to ask me of all of my colleagues what journalists got the best job, and it'd be my friend Paul Newberry. Paul Newberry has the best reporting gig in yeah. America. And he's the AP sports guy of Atlanta, but he's a national sports columnist for them. He's done gosh knows how many Olympics. Um, and 
you know, Paul and I used to, no, no joke, I was a Montgomery advertiser. He was in the AP yeah. Bureau in Montgomery. And I was the night sports guy. And we would literally take a football, go down on Dexter Avenue while I was waiting for the paper to run, and we would throw the football in front of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. That was wow. in the middle of the street at 2 in the morning. You know my late-night story about Paul Newberry? Oh, because um, I worked at AP in Atlanta, right? And he by then he was already a legend, um, but he never showed up at the office because he was all either at events or there's no reason to. So, because I'm Jewish, I always volunteered to work Christmas, Christmas Eve, whatever. And um, so it was either Christmas night or Christmas Eve, and at like you know one a.m. in the morning, I'm working the overnight shift and just making sure that no planes are crashing. You know, just yeah. just basically there for emergency duties, and maybe I'm watching a movie or just filing something minor and then suddenly and there's not supposed to be anyone in this office on the 24th floor of this big downtown Atlanta building and suddenly I hear this rustling and it's you know 11 mid- midnight something around there and in walks this guy with this kind of bushy hair and you know I'm like and there's no sporting events going on right that, that he's covering um and maybe basketball but he wasn't he doesn't really cover that and I was like what is that are you Paul Newberry he goes yep I said, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm here to file the expenses. So he would look, he would wait for the day that he thought no one would be at the office or the fewest people would be at the office. <laughs> and he would go and file expenses that day. I, Paul and Linda were fr- friends of mine in Montgomery. We went to a lot of jazz clubs and Rusty Nail. I hope Paul hears this. He was the one, he was responsible for a lot of my delinquency in my childhood. Love it. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting because there are characters you're, we're around characters. Our job, our job is better when the people we're writing about are characters, right? Yep. When they're interesting. I mean, even last night, and we're, we're taping this on the Tuesday after the legislative session ended. Yep. And even last night, there were some bills that that were very iffy um, if they had passed. And you know, we were all talking out as journalists, like, yes, it's probably okay that that bill didn't pass for the sake of Georgia, but. <laughs> You know, it would be really fun to write about it. You know, all the different things that would come out of this, this or that bill. So we have those discussions about about um, about issues sometimes, but let alone people, right? Um, you know, just the characters that we get to cover here. Calvin Smiley's where I'll start. Calvin is a Calvin. Character. Yeah, he's a great, you know, last night in the middle, it was maybe 11.50 p.m. So it was right before the final gavel bangs. And there's this sort of stir in the press gallery. I, I'm over at the state, I'm over at the house and there's this kind of like a bubble in glass area in the Senate, you're open air, you're out there on the floor with everyone else in the house. There's this sort of like glass area and there's a stir and it's Calvin. Um, Calvin had decided, you know, he had already given the very emotional farewell speech. He had already got the beautiful portrait of him uh, unveiled on the floor of the house. And he'd already said goodbye to you know, his colleagues and, and lobbyists and all these people that he's gotten to know so well over the Capitol. Uh, but he wanted to come back to the press corps and say goodbye to us individually and, and thank us for doing a job that, you know, you sometimes got him in, in hot water, right? You know, the, we didn't always write things that he liked us to write about, <laughs> right? Um, and he came back, and I actually, this is, you know, I actually, one of my editors was back there, and I said, tell me if it's bad, but I want a selfie with Calvin. Like, I've never done that before. I've never taken a selfie with a politician, but because he was retiring and because he's such a legendary figure, not only did my editor say, yeah, but he said, I want to get in it too. (laughs) So five or six of us AJC folks 
gotten a selfie with Calvin Smyre last night. Because you didn't post that, that on Twitter, I, did you? No, I did not. I did not. Send, Should I? No, text it to me. I'd like to see it. I'd I like, will. I will. I'd like to see it. You know, it, it's, I want to switch gears real quick and talk about, um, I want to get off of flipped a little bit off the, the politics. Or, well, let's go back to the politics is, I guess, the way I'm saying Yeah. Is 2022 shaping up to be another book? I mean, perhaps, right? Um, it's already looking like a epic, another epic election cycle. It's so unpredictable. Um, just like when I was writing the flip proposal, I had no idea what would happen in the runoffs. Just no idea. People would always ask, if you're closer to it you know, than, than, than most everyone, who do you think will win? I had no clue. No clue. Like, you know, sometimes you have a, a better sense um, because you kind of have a feel for what the electorate's thinking and, you you know, you see poll numbers. But all the poll numbers were really close, right? Yeah. Um, and you had no idea if the Trump coalition would come back out, if the Biden coalition would come back out, how much the misinformation was affecting things. So we're up for another really close election cycle. We have, and we have, we're living it right now. We have no idea. Every day there's another drama, it seems, right? Every day there's something. Sometimes it's all behind the scenes. So I would love to. I really did. I really love this process. Um, but, uh, but we'll have to kind of see how, how things play out later on this year to see what, what developments there is. I mean, you can't make up Purdue challenging Kemp. I mean, you just yeah. can't make that up. And, you know, and then just the way that Kemp and the people around him, the Cody Halls, those people – have decided that they're going to fight this with everything they have. And, yeah. you know, and they said scorched earth, and I believe them. Yeah. I was about to say that. They, they said very early that this was going to be a scorched earth campaign, no prisoners. Um, and look, they're not, even though Brian Kemp is ahead by double digits in some of these polls, he's ahead 11 in a Fox poll, he's ahead 10 plus and some other public polls we've seen, um, they're not taking, leaving anything to chance. The RGA just announced it's now spent $5 million, $5 million on airtime pr- promoting Governor Kemp in the run-up to the May 24th primary. Um, the governor got pretty much everything he wanted in this legislative agenda, which is incredible to think, because not that long ago we were having brutal... Republican or Republican warfare in the Capitol between Speaker Ralston and and Governor Kemp and just and, and other lawmakers who wouldn't go along with some of Kemp's agenda items. Um, I think Signy Die was a perfect example of how things have dramatically changed because now we have the opposite. Speaker Ralston was not a fan of the transgender athlete re- legislation in general, the whole notion of it. He was always seen as like the biggest obstacle to it. And that aversion of that, a watered down version, I mean, if, that's a bad term, but passed late last night. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say it's not, it's it's a little watered down because it's not a complete ban on, on transgender athletes uh, competing in high school. It kicks the, it kicks, kicks the decision over to the Georgia high school um, uh, athletic Association. So the Georgia, um, I mean, the Georgia High School Association will get to make the decision. What could possibly go wrong there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you know, lawmakers can say, "Hey, we've kind of uh, wiped our hands clean." So either way, just just getting that far 
was hard probably for, well, Speaker Ralston indicated it was hard for him to stomach and he's going to encourage GHSA officials um, to not take that step. But at the same time, that is exactly the sort of issue that Governor Kemp has been looking for to help energize Republican turnout. It's such a, it's such a core part of the GOP message right now that I was struck at the, at the Donald Trump rally up in Commerce uh, a couple uh, a week ago. The first thing out of Herschel Walker's mouth the first thing, not about 2020 elections, it was about um, it was about transgender athletes, and not only that, multiple other speakers who who went up to speak at the Donald Trump rally talked about the same issue. You know, and I know we got a pretty hard stop, so we're getting on top of it. But you know, you talk about these characters. I mean, we didn't even discuss Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, that's, I mean, you can't make this up. Chuck, you could write a book just on Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I, and I bumped into an author who actually who is. So <laughs> someone's working on something about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the way she's transformed herself. I wrote in my book, I first met her, I live up in the northern suburbs of Dunwoody in the 6th District. And I first met her um, at the local coffee shop around the corner from me, a mile, a mile from my house. She wanted to sit down to talk about her candidacy. She was going to challenge Karen Handel. And she was basically framing herself as a slightly more conservative version of Karen Handel, someone who didn't have the sort, sort of same like baggage as an insider as Karen Handel. And she wasn't a fan of the fact that Karen Handel had voted for the budget, the federal budget um, just recently. And so I said, okay, you know, good luck. Karen Handel's got this incredible name recognition and it's not going to be easy for her to win, even if she wins the primary, but you know, more power to you. Good, good, go for you, go for it. Right. It was nice to meet you. And then, you know, two months later, it becomes this sort of, I had no idea about her QAnon beliefs back then or or all the racist and xenophobic and anti-Semitic remarks. Like she just was, a, you know, people like me and you, we meet candidates all the time, right? Truth um, is stranger than fiction. It is. It really is. And then she ends up becoming the, you know, this nationally known candidate up in Northwest Georgia, moves out there to run for a seat where she didn't live. Hey, it's, I mean, it's, Politics and sports are so connected at the hip, and I think Herschel's going to be a very big piece of that this year. But yes. if you can cover sports, you can cover politics. Politics is the same. It's personalities, it's winners, losers. And, you know, that's one of the things that I love about it. It really is. It's a sport. It's a blood sport. So, Chuck, sport. you're saying I still have a chance to be the Braves beat writer? Oh, man. Don't you? Man, opening night, tomorrow night. I mean, I, when you love – to be, wouldn't you love to cover the Braves on a regular basis to have Dave O'Brien or have a, the job IJ had years ago? I mean, but it's work now. Dead, yeah. Deadlines and no, planes so ain't different. easy. And look, some, I look and I get it. People look at our jobs and say, oh, isn't that amazing? And then they don't realize all the behind the scenes things that, you know, how many phone calls do me and you make today, right? I, I had, um, I was on the phone with probably, I'm not kidding, you know, easily 15 people today, um, phone and probably texting 20 more. And some of those calls were not fun, right? Some of those calls were people not happy with something I wrote or multiple things I wrote. So, uh, you know, I can give you three examples just today, and I'm I, sure you can. I was shaking Randy Robertson, a state senator from here, and Richard Smith, a House member, out of bed because I was on Political Rewind this morning. I was shaking them out of bed. At seven o'clock this morning, they're going. Do you know what time we got through last night? Why are you calling? And I was like, I need some insight real quick. And yeah, um, 
Uh, midnight used to be the deadline and no longer. And these days, you know, there was time where we'd be out of a session right, right around midnight and we'd be in the bars by 1230, uh-huh. you know, celebrating the end of the session. And these days, um, after the session ends, like, you know, James Salzer said he wrote something like eight stories yesterday. There is, is no, um, <laughs> is the bar no still scaling back? Is the bar still Manuel's Tavern? The bar still Manuel's, but we didn't, I didn't go. I mean, if people went, it wasn't me because I didn't really get clear of my stuff that I needed to do till, till about one thirty. At that point, you're half an hour away from. Clear. We are in a 24 hour news cycle. There's no question about it. People yeah. like you, I mean, we have to deal with it. We're at a point now where I didn't tell you about this, but I did this on the podcast. Like I'll turn the tables. You get to ask me a question pretty easy. I mean, lawyers ask the toughest questions of come when you do lawyers on this you get tougher questions but it'll be interesting to see what a fellow journalist asks oh should i ask you a probing question um do you have do you do you have any regrets about the career path you've taken or every day do you say i'm glad i i'm a, I'm a journalist you know i come from a family of lawyers i thought i'd end up at law school didn't happen no regrets at all i mean none i i mean I wish I could change some things, but they're not involving me. Like right now in Columbus, Georgia, and I gotta be careful how I say this still. Um, we have a 16 year old kid who started a website and he's getting a lot of crime scoops, a lot of them. And, you know, it's like, but he, but it's not always exactly like it should be. Yeah, um, and you know, but he has eighty one thousand people following him on Facebook, and you know, and I've spent forty years trying to learn how to do this, and I still don't know how to do it. I can't imagine at sixteen with the pressure of trying to get it right and make sure it's right, trying to do that, knowing that eighty thousand plus are reading you. You know, I mean, I'm nervous at sixty one doing that. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's because I have a healthy respect for what happens when you screw up. And that yeah. my, my goal has been, and it continues to be, four decades into it, I've never been successfully sued. And I would love for that to be in my obituary. He went through an entire career doing political stories, public corruption stories, and was never – I mean, I've been sued one time – federal judge threw it out in a heartbeat didn't even get past the initial phase so i've never i've never been successfully sued and that's something that is very important to me it's kind of like the yeah. politician that wants to be able to say i never raised your taxes it, that's my yeah. version of that yeah you know i mean you're exactly right too about the new media and um what we've got though is is you know we've shown we can sustain and it's, it's sometimes it's easy to have um, you know, get a, get a quick following and, and, and write things that are uh, meant to, meant to be clickbait or meant to, meant to upset people or, or all that. And which is good. There's a, there's a place for that. In Atlanta, we have all the, a lot, all sorts of websites like that, that are, yeah. you know, they, they get a lot of prime scoops yeah. and things like that too. But what I always think of is, is people don't necessarily, I hope they come to me for breaking political news and they come to AJC and, and they come to you, um, for for news about politicians in, in West Georgia. But what I think we can do and what this book, I hope, does too is provides the why, right? We A lot of people can do the what happened and the when it happened. 
Um, but it's hard to do the how it happened, the why it happened. I come to you and Patricia for context. I mean, that's and you know all of y'all, but the the two I know the closest, and it was Galloway before you. And you know, and that's the interesting part is you and I aren't going to publish something until we have got it confirmed through basic journalistic principles and journalistic standards. Uh, citizens journalists, citizen journalists don't quite have that that um, obligation. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, you know, for as as old as media is, there's always been new things that have come out. <laughs> Maybe it's a quicker, quicker printing press or, you know, <laughs> uh, a smaller broadsheet. There's always been something. Um, but look, I mean, at the heart of it is credible people who 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 try to do their very best. We we mess up, right? Oh, we um, do, and we correct yeah. it immediately. We correct it, and we do our very best to not mess up too. You know, checking with people. Um, you know, going good faith. Hey, I'm reporting this good faith. And you look, we know it better than anyone. It's not just what we report or say on the news or say on on live air. It's what we tweet. It is, you know, it could be an Instagram story. You know, it could be something as minor your, your as... Your Twitter feed's an extension of yours. I mean, I tweeted uh, on September 19th, 18th, I tweeted that it was time for Lee Corso to go. I said, tired act, need a new person. Uh, yeah. And then Kirk Herbstreet retweeted it, calls, called me a clown. And I woke up on my birthday, September 19th, and I was looking forward to all the Facebook happy birthdays. And the first thing, I, the first tweet I see is, I hope someone craps, but they didn't use craps on in your birthday cake. And I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> and then I realized after calling the Auburn-Penn State game, Herb Street had gone on things, saw my tweet, saw I had a blue check mark beside it, and he literally, just tore me up, and and he, and I got sicked on by all his people. Last question, then we'll let you go. Um, have you thought about going to the TV side? I mean, I know you've got an MSNBC analyst deal going on now, contributor deal, but have, I mean, you act unlike me. You actually got a face for TV. I mean, have yeah, you, right. Have you? I was actually, gonna say not a, not everyone can make the transition as smoothly as you did because it's a whole different ball game, right? It is. A, You've got a, you know, you have live hits um, that I can go write my story from a coffee shop, as you well know, right? Because yeah. you've been there, um, where you have to be somewhere, uh, at the, you have to be outside the state capitol at 11 p.m. at night. Um, so, you know, it's 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 been fun doing what 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 we've all been doing, which is getting the chance to talk about Georgia politics to a national audience. But right now I'm doing it from like my living room, right? Yeah. And um, it's been, it was, that was the weirdest thing with the pandemic was that when this really started, when I started really doing a lot of more TV hits, it was 2015, 2016, during the Trump run. And I'd have to go to a studio and wait for like 45 minutes and get makeup done. And, you know, it was such a, it was an ordeal. It would take two hours to do a two I do my own makeup, by the way. No, I don't do anything. <laughs> um, but uh, you can tell. But it would be a two hour thing to do a two minute hit. And, you know, occasionally there'd be like a green room where you could just do several things at the same, you know, in the same spurt. But for the most part, it was very burdensome. And now in the, in the pandemic era, TV stations have realized that you can just do hits like this. And I've gotten calls at like, you know, 2.57 PM. Hey, can you be on air? We owe two, you know, and I run upstairs, I put a jacket on, I put a tie on, 
Um, I make sure that my hair isn't completely a mess. And, <laughs> and, and I go on air. And uh, I just, I, I think that I hope that the industry continues to evolve like that because I think it's such a, um, it's such a boon for, it's, a, it's just a good thing for listeners too. Because, hey, first of all, they realize that we're just like them because we are. And second of all, it really does reduce the barriers for, for people to enter, the barriers to entry for people to go talk about. You can get experts from, you know, Ukraine right now to talk about what's happening there without having to fly them over to New York or wait to get a studio it, in Poland or something. It's changed the Zoom ability. I mean, this podcast is an example of it. You know, you wouldn't have been able to drive down Columbus. It would have been a six-hour deal for you to do a one-hour podcast. Now it isn't, and that's kind of cool. Well, we're at the point now, Greg, where I've got to crash the car on the way out of here because I do every time because I've, I'm good at starting it, but I'm just terrible at ending the show. I'm the same way. Uh, it's it's just it's it's brutal. But here we go, Dylan. I'm going to see what we do. We'll start with you can catch the Chuck Williams show on wrbl.com. It's on Tuesday nights from seven to eight. You can get it any time after that, and that's where you can see Greg's Greg's mug. Uh, then you can go to Apple, Spotify, and iHeart to get it on the traditional podcast forums where you don't have to see my mug. And then you know we're going to do social media because we always do social media. Greg is a Twitter fool. Say your Twitter page real quick, Greg. Bluestein, just B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N. If you're following Georgia politics, that's a pretty good defin- uh, destination to land. I'm on Twitter at Chuck Williams. Facebook, Chuck Williams, WRBL, and on Instagram, Chuck Williams, 0999. You've been listening to the Chuck Williams Show. Our guest has been Greg Bluestein. Greg wrote, AJC reporter, wrote the book Flipped about what happened to Georgia politically in the 2020, and I guess January 2021 election cycle. Uh, Greg, thanks for being here, man. Hey, it was such a good time. Thank you for having me. Okay, be safe. We hope, we hope you'll come back next week for another edition of the Chuck Williams Show. We're probably going to stay on the political side at least through the primaries in May, so you'll, you'll probably be a political guest. Um, we'll let you know then. Thanks for listening, guys.